glass of close to your mouth. That one? Good morning, church. <laughs> Here's a reading from Matthew 5:38 to 5:48. Give you a moment to open your Bibles on page 970. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to receive an evil person, resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn away. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those that love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you, regret, if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Thank you. All right. See how I fall. <laughs> right, a good morning, 10 o'clock church. All right, now listen, um, I think you need some blood pumping through your veins, so I want everybody to stand up. And just um, stretch like this. It's a group exercise. You've got to do it unless you're unable to do it. We're going this way. We're going this way. We're going one more this way. And one more that way. Great job. Have a seat. I'll pray for us. Keep your Bibles open. We'll get underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us in so many varied ways, but especially through your Son. And as we hear his words now, uh, we want them to not just sound nice but to actually change our lives so let us listen with a view to change in jesus name amen all right folks we're going to start um with a fill in the blank exercise i want you to answer these questions in your own head okay so don't say anything answer them in your head um first question god is so wonder what you said yeah you can't say it out loud that's the rule uh second question jesus is so Third question, Christians are such, <laughs> what did you say in your head? Did you say hypocrites? Did you say dorks? I said wusses, wimps, walkovers, easy targets, all of the above. Christians are wusses is what I said. And to be honest, I think Jesus is partly responsible for that. 
To be specific, I think it's Jesus' words in our reading today that are responsible for that. How can he legitimately say, do not resist an evil person? (laughs) I mean, really? Turn the other cheek? If we were just to saunter back to the whole um, pride jersey in the infamous Manly Seven, (laughs) sorry, we've got to go back there. Uh, How come it was the Christians who got pinned for not donning the rainbow jersey? when there was a, a Muslim woman player from the AFLW called Hanin Zrika, who seems like a really nice lady, she did the exact same thing, but nobody said a word. And don't you sense that the Manly Seven got off lightly? And if they'd been white boys rather than islanders, boy, the comeback would have been even more severe. Now, we know from the Beatitudes, blessed are you when you are persecuted because of righteousness, that disciples of Jesus who live out his kingdom ethics will be persecuted, but but don't you reckon Jesus adds fuel to the fire? Doesn't he make it harder and more dangerous by telling his followers to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give the extra clothing, and so on? I mean, has he built non-resistance into our DNA to such a degree that others take advantage of Christians more than they otherwise would because they know we won't fight back. I mean, what does it mean for us in this day and age to turn the other cheek and love our enemies? Well, that's what we're thinking about today. Now, last week, um, Nathan suggested that he gets all the really tricky topics like homosexuality and lust. I think, well, fair enough. But then I think Bruce had to look at transgender and I had to look at hell and abortion and euthanasia. So I think the scandalous stuff is shared around, which is good, isn't it? different voices, <laughs> that way you get to hate us equally, you know. <laughs> and today might be less salacious, I think, than lust. But, but my question is, is it any easier? For if you follow Jesus' instructions today, literally, it will leave you beaten up, naked, bankrupt. Oh, so let's see how that goes for us, hey? We are, as Steffi said, literally, um, well not literally, but about halfway through our Sermon on the Mount series that we've called Kingdom Calling. And today is really the third part of an extensive section on renewed relationships in Matthew 5, after we looked at some of the general principles at the beginning. We've looked at anger and reconciliation. We've looked at lust and adultery and faithfulness. Today we're looking at revenge, retaliation, and how we respond when we've been wronged. And once again, it's very confronting material. I want to structure today very simply around the two sections in the reading. The first we'll call Turn the Other Cheek. The second we'll call Love Your Enemies. Very simple structure, but it is far from simple in practice. So let's get into it. Firstly then, Turn the Other Cheek in verses 38 to 42, where Jesus is teaching us about how you respond when you've been wronged, when your rights and your conveniences have been trampled upon. What are our obligations in such a context? And so he begins there in verse 38 with that, that formulation that sounds very familiar to us by now. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Well, let's read it together from verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So a familiar formulation, and indeed familiar words in general. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, where he says, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And I think we naturally have a dark read 
on, uh, on that concept. It sounds like petty, tit-for-tat revenge. And we'd rather prefer Mahatma Gandhi's version. An eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. At least, we prefer the way it sounds. I'm not sure we're prepared to put it into action. But here's the deal, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, sometimes known as the lex talionis or the law of retribution, was a super wise way God instructed his Old Testament people of Israel to ensure there was kind of appropriate and proportionate justice in society. It meant with those with less power actually got the justice, they received it, and those with more power didn't abuse their power to inflict greater retribution than was justified. It sort of prevented those blood feuds that start with, you hurt my cow, I burn down your house, and kind of end up with centuries and centuries of bitter fighting and reprisals. So rather than enabling petty tit-for-tat revenge, it was meant to restrict retribution. Now, friend, I need you to not be disruptive. Is that okay, man? Do you mind sitting down quietly for me? Is that okay? That'd be fantastic. Yeah, if you just have a seat, we'd be much uh, very appreciative. Thank you. Okay, um, yes, so rather than enabling kind of petty tit-for-tat revenge, it was meant to restrict retribution, but here's the thing, right? It was designed for civil disputes rather than personal grievances, and it was meant to be administered by the court rather than being kind of a free-for-all in interpersonal relationships. So what had started out as a very kind of sage and wise and measured instrument of justice had given way to a license for bitterness and revenge. It became an entitlement to vengeance for all sorts of reasons and situations. And into that context, Jesus says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, you don't slap them back, you turn to them the other cheek. And friends, I reckon we think, that sounds so nice and noble until we've been whacked across the side of the face. Isn't that right? In Jesus' day, the, the backhander across the face was more about insult than physical injury. It was amongst the most insulting things you could do to someone. You might remember that Jesus was slapped in the face in Matthew 26 when he was accused of blasphemy. And yet Jesus here says, No, you turn the other cheek ready to be slapped again or if someone sues you for your inner garment your shirt you give them your outer garment your cloak as well now that's interesting you know because the religious law in exodus 22 forbade the confiscation of the cloak on humanitarian grounds right you would die from the cold without it but here jesus says no give it over and if a Roman soldier forces you to go one mile, perhaps carrying his luggage, as Roman soldiers were prone to do in those days, you happily go another mile. Give to the one who asks or who wants to borrow. What a handy verse to roll out when you're doing a finance report. And I'm not even joking, friends. Now, what is he really saying? Because there is a degree of hyperbole here. You know, there's a degree of exaggeration to generate a response. If you literally, literally put those commands into practice, as I said, you'd be beaten up. You would have neither outer clothes nor undergarments. So, you know, you'd be nude and cold. That's awkward. You'd be worn out from carrying soldiers' luggage. And you'd have no money, at least not if you get as many requests from charities as I seem to. So there's a degree of hyperbole, exaggeration. You can't sort of absolutize what he's saying. And these words aren't meant 
to be arguments for complete pacifism or for Christians never taking up roles in the military or the police or the judicial system. It's not saying you can never stand in the way uh, of an abusive person. Like on several occasions here in Manly, I've literally stood between a violent man and a woman he has wanted to hurt. It sucks because they're always bigger and younger than me. (laughs) I'm worried, you know. It's not saying you can't resist them. It's not saying uh, you can't refuse a beggar. Like on the occasions when you, when you know that the money is just going to go to drink and drugs. But his words are saying that our rights to respect and retaliation are not the most important thing for disciples of Jesus. I, I know, like in our culture, personal rights are at the top of the food chain in our society, right? I know my rights. It's a catch cry of our culture. I have heard those words come out of the mouth of a three-year-old. But Jesus says his followers are different. And just as there is a yawning chasm between the sexual ethic of our society and the sexual ethic in Scripture like Nathan shared with us last week, there's also a yawning chasm between the sense of personal rights and entitlements, even to revenge in our culture, and the ethic of non-retaliation in Jesus' teaching. Now, I don't know what it is. I suspect it's my background as a writer and editor, but I find myself having an unspoken conversation with Jesus around these verses, as if to say, Jesus, if you just make a few changes, I'm here to help you. It'll really tighten things up, strengthen your argument. And I reckon you're having the same subconscious conversation with Jesus as well, if you're paying attention. Because this is how it would go. Um, Jesus, I'm thinking instead of saying turn the other cheek, it actually would work better if you said don't retaliate, but make sure that you protect yourself. And uh, I've been thinking about the whole shirt cloak thing. It would be better to just say give the person your shirt without making a fuss. After all, you've still got your cloak. That's worth more and it'll keep you warm. And, And with the whole second mile thing, why don't you just say go with him the first mile without making complaint and don't even mention the second mile. Like that'll, that'll tighten up the overall argument. It'll make it much more believable. But we're talking to Jesus, and in fact, he's talking to us. He's the king, so he doesn't require editorial assistance from me. And so what we need to do is, is to jettison that inbuilt desire to retaliate and instead be ready to absorb further insults. You know, when our friends, our family members, our colleagues insult us, when the newspaper editorials, they are just so one-eyed, so incredibly unbalanced about the Christian faith and its vast contribution to democracy and culture and justice and education and science and so on, and we just want to fight back with vitriol, you know, get the record straight. You know what? We don't need to. A well-timed, calm word might be appropriate, but that's probably about it. And when we're tempted to enforce our societal assumption about the rights we're entitled to, the rights to be respected or reimbursed or whatever it is, we need to actually replace that with self-sacrificial suffering. Now, it doesn't mean that in any every situation we should be trampled. You will remember acutely there are occasions where Jesus resisted the money changes of the temple and the Pharisees in their hypocrisy. He usually resisted on behalf of others, didn't he? So if you find that your attitude is that for your sake, you always need to win, you always need to be respected, you always need to prevail, you always need to be proved right, friends, that's a worldly ethic, 
and it's not a kingdom ethic. And instead of begrudging it when somebody imposes upon our time and effort, we can actually accept it cheerfully and go beyond the initial request. I reckon we can do that. And when we give or loan money or possessions, we don't need to ask that question that just so seems to nag us. What's in it for me? Surely I should receive something in this transaction. We don't have the right to retaliate and to seek vengeance, even when we've been wronged, disrespected and insulted, or to be reimbursed. We don't even have an inalienable right to our possessions and time and energy. In the kingdom of heaven, self-sacrifice replaces retaliation and rights. And that's okay, you know. Because Christian person, if you are secure in your status as God, with God, and if you are a Christian, you are secure, let me tell you that. You care less about what society thinks about you. It doesn't matter as much. And when you will inherit the universe, and friends, that is the promise of the Beatitudes. It's okay if you lose some earthly riches even temporarily. And when you think of what Jesus endured for us, just in, just in the poverty of his life, compared to the, the glory of heaven, not to mention the humiliation of his death on a cross, a little imposition from others doesn't seem like too much to bear. And it is countercultural, I get it. But it is distinctively and authentically Christian. And so it has to be good for us. And so as we switch gears from turning the other cheek to loving our enemies, it's, it's less of a clunky gear change. It's not a 17-year-old's find it and grind it, you know. It's more of a smooth move from fourth to fifth. Well, let's read together from verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And so, friends, for the last time you see that, for, that familiar formulation, you've heard that it was said. It's certainly true that you read, love your neighbor, straight out of the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19. To be honest with you, I'm not quite sure where they got um, that religious teaching about hating your enemies, where that emerged. But it doesn't matter because Jesus says, you love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. And, you know, in a really clever way, that circles back to the earlier theme of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Rejoice and be glad, verse 12. Now, most of us, we don't have histories of bitter and bloody tribal rivalry over many centuries behind us. Though some of us have got that in our cultural backgrounds. Some of us might have enemies in a very personal sense. There have been people who have harmed us in various ways that have caused profound and deep hurt. Others of us, we just have a broad and vague sense that we're no longer the good guys in society anymore and the people that are out there that kind of hate us. And to all those contexts, Jesus instructs his followers to love enemies and pray for persecutors. Well, what might that look like? Perhaps, and I suggest these all tentatively, not knowing everybody's exact scenario, Perhaps you could try to understand your enemy. You could put yourself in their shoe, shoes and ask the question, am I that different from them? Or would I have done anything differently if I was in their situation? If I lived their life? 
Could you seek the best for them? Could you try to find something good in them? Focus on that. Maybe even find common ground. Could you even do something for them? Sounds so difficult, doesn't it? You know, this week I read stories of Christians in Lebanon who were running shelters and camps for Syrian refugees who had murdered their family members. I don't know how you do that, but they're doing that. Martin Luther King, who personified this principle of non-violent approach to civil rights for African Americans, he said, you know, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. It's so powerful, isn't it? It may be you can do none of those things. You can't find good in them. It's just not there. You can't find common ground. You cannot understand them. And it may be that you can do nothing else but pray for your persecutors then Jesus says, do that, friend. And I think you will find that it softens your heart towards them, or maybe it just softens your heart. It may even soften your interactions with them. So it may do something for them, but it, it certainly will do something for you, something good for you, as you refuse to give in to bitterness and hard-heartedness and you entrust justice to God. Now, if your question is not how, but why, Jesus provides a couple of negative reasons in verses 46 and 47. Basically saying anyone can be kind to their friends, man. No big deal. To be kind to your own people. It doesn't take anything special or distinctive to love those who love you. Even tax collectors, the most despised people in Israel, could be gracious to their fellow tax collector chums. What does that prove? Not much. But in the positive, when you love your enemies and you pray for your persecutors... You mimic your heavenly father. Now, I wonder what it would have been like to have been this man or be this man, Mick Schumacher. I want to let you guys down here know, I got into Formula One through Steph Knowles. It's so weird. It makes no sense to me at all. But she loves it. Now I do too. Mick Schumacher, Formula One driver for the Haas team. Currently in 16th place on 12 points with zero wins and zero podiums for the 2022 season. To give a perspective, if that doesn't mean anything to you, Max Verstappen, who is leading the standings, has 416 points with 14 wins and 16 podium placings. Hmm, not good to be Mick. On the bright side, though, Mick's up from last year where he got precisely zero points, zero wins, zero podium placings, coming 19th out of 20 places. Now, many of you will know that Mick Schumacher has a father with the same name, Michael Schumacher, one of the greatest Formula One drivers of all time. Michael Schumacher has a joint record of seven World Drivers' Championships and at the time of his retirement from the sport in 2012 held the records for the most number of wins at 91, the most number of pole positions at 68 and the most number of podium finishes at 155. They have only just now been broken by Lewis Hamilton and he maintains the record for the most number of fastest laps at 77. That's just numbers to you. What I want you to do is just imagine for a moment being a son of Michael Schumacher and being into motor racing. Uh, you'd think you would choose something completely different, like trampolining, <laughs> wouldn't you? <laughs> I reckon. The pressure of the surname, the family legacy, the expectation. How could you live up to it? Well, it turns out you can't. But then if you think about it, Mick Schumacher is his father's son. 
He's on the grid in the most elite form of motor racing. He is behind the wheel, the 16th best driver in the world. And improving, he's on the up. Not perfect, but he's in the race. Now look at verse 45. It tells us positively that when we love our enemies, when we pray for our persecutors, we are sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. We're not as good, but we're on the grid. We're in the race. Just as he sends sun and rain on believers and unbelievers alike, on the righteous and the unrighteous in equal measure, when we love our enemies, we in some way reflect him. You go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It says to be persecuted for the sake of God, that aligns us with the prophets of old. But to pray for our persecutors, not just to be persecuted, but to pray for our persecutors, that aligns us with the character of God, that we might be children of our Father in heaven. Of course, it also reflects the initiative of God who made the first move towards us to forgive us when we were his enemies. And of course, it mimics the Lord Jesus who prayed for his executors. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They've got no idea when they nailed him to the cross. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be like your Father in heaven. Now, I want you to look with me at the very last verse in the passage, verse 48. And I think verse 48 functions less like a summary to this little section and more as a summary to the, the bigger block. But let's read it together. Be perfect, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Seems like it's not quite enough to be in the race, to be on the grid after all. Man, it's a high calling, isn't it, this kingdom calling? And we've got a strong sense of our personal inability to meet the call, which of course pushes us right back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in which we admit our spiritual poverty in humility, asking for forgiveness rather than resting in our own self-righteousness. But Jesus doesn't finish this section with an instruction to be perfect, just to drive us, or just to drive home our complete inability to do just that. He finishes this way to urge us to keep at it, to not give up, to engage our hearts as well as the externals, to observe the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the commands, to be transparent in our kingdom ethics, just as God is so beautifully transparent in his holiness, eliminating religious hypocrisy in our lives and every spiritual sham within us. And friends, when, when I think about that in its entirety, right, not, not just the specifics of today, I'm forced to conclude that Christians are not wusses, wimps, and walkovers. Quite the opposite. Because it requires strength to absorb insult again and again. And it requires great grace to jettison our desire for retaliation and revenge and it requires discipline to resist firing back with venom, either in person or online. And it requires such ma uh, muscularity and humility to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. It really does require strength. So not wussy, not wimps, 
not walkovers by any stretch, but children of our Father in heaven, disciples of the Lord Jesus, and citizens of the kingdom of heaven who take to our kingdom calling with all of our very hearts. Amen. Amen. Now, folks, we're going to um, have a time of prayer, and uh, we're going to start it off by praying this prayer of confession together, which really leads out of um, the stuff that we've been thinking about. So I want, I'm going to give you 30 seconds just to read through that prayer of confession, and then we're going to pray it to God together before Kath continues leading us in prayer. So 30 seconds, and then we'll bang it out. All right, friends, let's pray these words together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us when we were your enemies. We praise you for calling us your children. Forgive us for not loving our enemies, for seeking revenge and being too concerned about our rights and our respect. Help us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies and to pray for our persecutors, just as Jesus did. Amen. Amen.